Well, and I, I, there will be a test, yes. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for your word and we're grateful for the prophet Jonah. We'd ask that you would bless our time over the next few weeks in the story of his ministry. We'd ask that we would see your son in it all. In your son's name, amen. Okay. Um, the presence of the maps are because I have them. And so at certain points you take a second to point out something and it's forgotten the rest of the time. But with Jonah, since it's such a short book and there's so much historic background um, that we have to be kind of cognizant of regarding it, um, it's helpful, especially when it comes to someone running away from God. Um, the reason jo Jonah is important, not merely because it's Bible, is because Christ leans into that story and refers his own death, burial, and resurrection to, to as the sign of Jonah. We'll have that passage, we'll read it through it in a second. And the sign of Jonah is consequently worth examining what's, what's going on with Jonah. Um, at the top of your sheet, before we get into the book of Jonah, that first, Second Kings 14.23, uh, it's the other mention of, besides Christ's mention of Jonah, the other mention of Jonah in the scriptures. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, that's helpful, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of, of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. Okay, now, that tells you one of the things that we need to know about Jonah is when, uh, where he was from. Uh, I even have push pins that I will push into my map. Uh, Gath Kiefer is the first one. It's, uh, I think it's still an actual town. You know, it's, it's approximately up near Nazareth. Nazareth right there, it's north near Cana of Galilee. Uh, right about there. And we don't know if he was living there at the time of his, his uh, prophetic work, but if it was, his uh, descent to go out of Jer uh, Joppa to run away from the Lord. Joppa's right here. Wow. That's about 60 miles. If you have a shorter distance than here to Spokane. It gives you some sense. You have to walk it in those days. But, um, but what that tells you, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, uh, the, the northern kingdom was, uh, was Israel and the southern kingdom was Judah. So, uh, uh, Amaziah is king of Ju Judah, Jeroboam the son of Joash, king of uh, Israel. Jeroboam is the last of the line of Jehu. Jehu was the upstart guy that God used to kill off the house of Ahab and Jezebel uh, uh, a bit of time earlier. And because he did the Lord's work, he wasn't quite a... He was a Donald Trump of his age, let's just say he did good things in a bad way and 
but God granted him a bit of a dynasty four generations before he would end it. But Jeroboam is the king uh, at the time of uh, Jonah's uh, ministry. Um, what that tells you is it's one of the most dateable portions of uh, ancient Israelite history. I have, I know you're going to want to get this tattooed, the uh, Assyrian king list from about the second dark age forward to the end of Assyria. Uh, those aren't Bible names. Well, some of them are Bible names, uh, but they're not uh, Bible people. Uh, the characters we're dealing with, you see the, the uh, bolded name Shamshi Adad V and Adad Nirari III, and their years 823 down through 783. Those are the two possible Assyrian kings that Jonah prophesied against in Nineveh. Okay? We know this because Jeroboam um, was reigning during their time and he had prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam to a certain, to a certain end. <coughs> we do have one of the greatest um, archaeological finds is the black obelisk of uh, Shalmaneser III, right above Shamshi Adad V. Shalmaneser III left a record of his uh, uh, military campaigns and he had one in the eighth year and one in the what's 12 years from that? 20. The sixth year and the 18th year. That's 12? Is that 12 years? Yeah. Simple math? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so six, 6 plus 12 is uh, 18. But he actually mentions two Jewish kings in his inscriptions uh, and one was Ahab and the other one was Jehu. Not that he fought against them, but that they had to pay tribute to him and they loaned him soldiers and chariots. The, the picture on the black obelisk is of Jehu bowing down in front of Shalmaneser III. So Shalmaneser III sets in place, because we know the Assyrian dates, the Assyrians were sticklers for accounting for every year. We wouldn't know when Bible things happened, you know, maybe with even a hundred years, if we didn't have the Assyrian uh, lists of events. And since we know the Assyrian dates for uh, Shalmaneser III, we can date Ahab and Jehu because of those mentions, and then consequently working forward in the scriptures, we can know approximately where Jeroboam was and with that Jonah. So that gives you a sense, since the king of Assyria is not mentioned by name in the book of Jonah, uh, this is a helpful uh, bit of information. Probably Shamshi Adad V is probably the guy, uh, given what we know of his personality. Um, the book of Jonah um, starts out this way. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Um, Nineveh had become, oh, with the other map, Nineveh had become um, the dominant city in Assyria uh, maybe a few hundred years prior to this moment. It used to be the city-state, let's see, Asher's right here, 
and Asher is the initial city-state that Assyria was based off of. It's probably the earliest nation-state in the Bible mentioned. It's mentioned in the location of the Garden of Eden. It tells you that the river Tigris flows east of Asher. It and looks Asher... A lot like our house. What's that? It looks a lot like our house. We're just getting reflection of... Of the house. I tilt it. Thank you. That's now recorded and will be on SoundCloud. Um, everything was a city-state functioning, and Asher was one of the sons of Japheth. Um, uh, or... No, one of the sons of Shem uh, in the book Table of Nations with our Pakshad. And so the dynasty of Assyrians shares the same family group. They're Semitic um, and they just split off in the first generation at the Table of Nations. But Asher was the city-state. Uh, uh, mentioned all the way back, at the, not at the time of the Garden of Eden, but certainly after the flood. Uh, a few hundred years prior to the date of uh, the book of Jonah, the, uh, the kings of Assyria moved their, their dominant city to Nineveh. Uh, and um, it is, uh, you, this is maybe information you already knew, but um, it's in the news. Because Nineveh today is Mosul. It was just taken by the Iraqi forces away from ISIS. ISIS had held Mosul for whatever, three years, and they took it back. Well, that's Nineveh. And Nineveh, the archaeological digs are right in the middle of the city of Mosul. Um, so a little bit of, let me put, you say, we know where Asher is. Where's Nineveh? I can't read from that far away. There's Nineveh, just a little bit north on the Tigris River. This is the Tigris on the top side, the Euphrates on the bottom. <laughs> and if you don't know where the Holy Land is, let's put gas heaper. Where is it? Between Sea of Galilee. Do I have the? Sea? I don't have the Sea of Galilee on here. Somewhere in there. Somewhere in there. So that's about 500 miles, I think, uh, as the crow flies. And uh, what happens next? Um, that great nation, when it says that great city, uh, when it says that great city, uh, its wickedness is, the wickedness has come up before me. He says the same thing of Sodom and Gomorrah. A great outcry has arisen against these cities, and I have come down to see whether it's all together according to what I've heard. He knows, knows it about Nineveh. The Assyrian dominance, Assyria had always been a well, they were, shall we say, from Potlatch. <laughs> and they, they knew they were from Potlatch. And they always felt a little embarrassed coming into Moscow, and so did the Assyrians going to Babylon. Babylon was the center of all things cultural, all things religious. They felt inferior. They used to be named Subartu. And they really... Uh, had a hard, because everybody used it in an insulting way, that it actually worked. Like when you say potlatch, or you'd say Subartu. They finally, one of the kings, uh, a little before this king list here, changed the name to Assyria. And Asher Dan I, the guy, first guy on the list, he's not the first king of Assyria, 
he changed the language, the official language of Assyria, to Assyria. Because it had been Akkadian and started to use their own language. So they were getting a little more confident about themselves. And a couple kings later, four kings down, Asher Nasir Paul II, they had been going to war with people for a long time, hundreds of years, and they were getting good at one thing, and that was called cruelty. And they were horrifying. People would surrender if they heard they were coming. You know, um, it was they, Asher Nasir Paul II had developed the Assyrian art of war, which included, you know, siege machines, war chariots, mounted uh, cavalry. Uh, that sounds pretty normal. And then impaling, flaying, and mass deportation. And you were always happy if you got mass deported because yeah, that means you were not impaled and you were not flayed. Flayed means taking your skin off while you're alive, all of it. And they would coat, they'd build a pyramid in front of a conquered city and they would cover the pyramid with the skins of the nobles that they had. And they left, left them to die, they didn't kill them. They took off their skin and they would die of infection or pain or whatever else. And the impaling part, they'd stick you on a sharp stick and slowly you would slide down the sharp stick until it came out the, the top. Uh, they uh, were very sophisticated, <laughs> but very, very cruel. And consequently, this was all before Jonah gets the word from the Lord. God has said, they're a wicked people. Shamshi Adad, I mean, Shalmaneser III had carried on those policies. Shamshi Adad was a, a weak monarch. He had been uh, bumped off the throne for a time and then had to get back onto it with help from Babylon. And it was embarrassing. He was sort of a weak reed that, that not as strong uh, or threatening a figure. But uh, he's famous for his dad, Shalmaneser III, his wife, Shamshi Adad's fifth wife, was Semiramis. Now, Semiramis, or uh, Samu Ramat, um, is famous in Christian mythical history. They usually have her married to um, Ninos, uh, starting the Catholic Church way back, you know, back when you had hate literature about the Catholic Church. They always had Semiramis married to King Ninos and Wrong century, wrong everything. Uh, she was married to Shamshi Adad the fifth. Notable woman, but not the uh, conspiracy theory circumstance. So that's the wickedness. We got obviously the idolatry, obviously the normal sin of an ancient city. Add to that <coughs> a conquering uh, uh, reputation that didn't uh, most people didn't like. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. A couple things are repeated in that verse. Tarshish and the presence of the Lord. Uh, one more pushpin. Tarshish, well there's different positions. <laughs> Um, Josephus believes that Paul of Tarsus, Tarshish is here. Okay, we'll put that pen in there. This is tougher plastic. 
Okay, another pin. <clears throat> and you might like that view. I think it's not a good place to flee to because it's halfway to Nineveh. Yes. You know, it's, uh, to get to Nineveh, you didn't go like this because this is all desert. You went up the coast to the tops of the rivers, crossed over to the Tigris, and went down the river. Uh, so it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Um, there's an ancient uh, inscription found in Sardinia in the early part of the last century. I'm just going to put it here's Sardinia, in case you don't know your geography. Southern part of Sardinia, uh, called the the Nabu Stone or the Nora, Nora Stone, the Nora Stone, and some general, uh, um, a Phoenician general, had scribbled on it after defeating Tarshish in a battle out here in Sardinia, and he credits. And what's interesting about it, it's the same century as Jonah's flight. It's the 800s BC, about uh, maybe eight. 830, something like that, BC. Um, it's a very, like, five lines, six lines of inscription. Um, so some people think Sardinia was the location of Tarshish, but it doesn't say that, although it says he defeated the Sardinians, and Tarshish is mentioned in it. Um, the Probably the true one is here in Spain, right there, just north of Cadiz, on the other side of the Straits of Gibraltar, and uh, it was a, a, a port trading city called Tartessos, and Tartessos was what everybody else thought Tarshish was, from Livy, Aristotle, Herodotus, Pisanias, Strabo, everybody talks about this city, and some actually moderns think it may have been Plato's reference for Atlantis, because it get, it's at the mouth of the river uh, Guadalquivir, you know, that where um, Seville and Cordoba uh, are on this river in southern Spain. Um, they was at the mouth, and they think the, the, the city got <coughs> washed away or salted in or, or something like that. But it was a trading, smelting, uh, mining region, and people in the Phoenicians would go to the other end of the Mediterranean to bring back goods. Um, Solomon's navy was called the ships of Tarshish, which the Phoenicians would use. This was a Phoenician trade city, and so that's probably the likely place he's going. And it's a long way, what, 2,500 miles, something like that, by boat, if you make it, and he didn't. Um, so you can look at these later. The, pr the writing on this is pretty small, and now there are holes punched in it. These are the first holes that I have punched in it. Okay. The other phrase, <coughs> to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Anybody who's old enough remembers the Eric Clapton song, The Presence of the Lord, uh, which everybody thought meant Eric Clapton was a Christian, which meant he was a heroin addict at the time. But uh, great song. The presence of the Lord is a concept that is repeated through this chapter. And it's something that, as I looked at it, you know, you go prepare for a, a Bible study that's only four chapters long, and each chapter is about that much. It's, you got to make stuff up, you know, you, or you start spotting things that you might have missed without looking at it 
too closely. But he makes the claim that Jonah wants to flee from the presence of the Lord. In the second chapter, we get the prayer of repentance of Jonah. I'm not giving anything away here, right? He's in the belly of the whale. Okay, you do that. He's praying, and he talks about the presence of the Lord in terms of the temple in Jerusalem that he's not able, you know, to visit because he's in the belly of a whale. Um, so when he's thinking flight from the presence of the Lord, it's not that he doesn't believe that God is bigger than Jerusalem, but that he knows which direction he's turning and what he is doing with himself in this flight as far away as he can get in the ancient world. There's not much further you can get in travability. There may have been some journeys up into the British Isles, but we're not even sure about that. The Phoenicians may have gone up there. But being away from the presence of the Lord. Now, in terms of our own piety, our own devotion, you know, I, I think I've mentioned it before some of you, I was talking to a guy years ago who was leaving his wife and um, I was talking to him on the front porch and I said, you don't even want to look up do you? Physically, look up. You know, the head turning back on his shoulders and look at he, he didn't want to even look up. Even if he didn't believe that God was up there and he was down here the meaning of the concept finding yourself facing God is a very hard thing with guilt a very hard thing when you want to do what you want to do Jonah did not want to go preach to Nineveh he doesn't even want to preach against it in Nineveh we don't we're not given well a little later in the book we're given some reasons of Jonah's but he doesn't want to do it. He wants to do what he wants to do. But you can't persist in that if you are standing face to face with the Lord. The, the, the holiness of God, when God denies Moses the right to see his face on Mount Sinai, he said, no one shall see my face and live. You begin to realize that the holiness of God encountered face to face. He claims it in a metaphorical sense with Moses later when Miriam's complaining about him and he says, you know, they get prophecies, but I speak to Moses face to face. We know that the idea, and we've been toying with this lately in some discussions about, about all love, love is turning toward something. And when someone is in flight from the presence of the Lord, and sometimes the word presence here, I don't know, I looked it up, is the word face, or face toward. That's the basic idea. He is trying to turn his back on God and run away as far as he can. Now, in the ancient world where God was locatable, the presence of God was on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, uh, not the only being of God, but a presence of God. You could do it geographically as well. But I think that Jonah knew that there was no running from his God, because once he starts to define his God, He's, he's, uh, he's clear about that. But most of us, even though we know that God watches over all of us, when we want to sin, when we flee from the presence, we choose to do things like not 
fellowship with saints, not read our Bibles, not pray. Not because we don't know, we don't think that God doesn't know that. He knows you're not praying, and He knows you're not in the Word, and knows you're not fellowshipping. But you kind of feel like you gotta to get away with this. You set up a physical circumstance where you run as far as you can, and then you serve yourself. It's a it's a silly little move, but we do it. We run as far as we can with our back towards God to try to in a sense, to strip the knowledge of God from our consciousness. So that by the time we get close to Tarshish, we can uh, do what we wanted. Or not do what we didn't want. Verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God, and they threw the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down, and was fast asleep. Looks like Ian down. Get Ian down. I don't know if it struck you, but did that remind you of anything? I have the passage here on the side, Mark 4. And a great storm of wind arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care if we perish? And he woke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? And they were filled with awe and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea <coughs> obey him? That's what I thought of when I had the character of the story going into a storm asleep. Now this is maybe a good time to bring up that what Christ has already said about, about Jonah. I read the, the top passage on the right hand side, Matthew 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, <coughs> Teachers, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And Luke 11 adds, For as Jonah became a sign to the men of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Back into Matthew. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will arise at, ju at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, you have a few things to deal with. What kind of usage do you put the book of Jonah to? Because as soon as you try to make Jonah Jesus, you're going to have some problems. He is not a good type for Jesus. He is not a good allegory for Jesus. But you had things happening, types of, you might say, measurement. Three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. Three days and three nights uh, in the belly of the earth. As long as, you, as long as you remember that something greater than Jonah is there in Christ. There was, there's no way you could read Jonah and figure out anything messianic if Christ hadn't come. And if Christ hadn't said. But you know that Christ, especially since the part of ministry that Christ is in, walking on the water, 
uh, or or in the sleep in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. Oh, five ten miles away from home, uh, Nazareth, which is right next to where Jonah was from. Everybody, he's a local guy. His tomb, I think, is still in Gathifer. So you can you, th th that consciousness might be, have been in Christ's mind, but he also is saying, look at this and bring up the common elements, all the way down to sleeping in the boat. I don't know if that was planned, but it struck my mind, the three days, three nights is explicit. For you to go, oh my gosh, there's something going on here, and Christ says yes, but it's greater than what you read. It's greater um, than the message that Jonah preached. But the thing that we have to concern ourselves with here is what Jonah is going to preach. And the reference from Luke uh, there shortly after it began, he says, For as Jonah became a sign to the men of Nineveh. And we don't have any record of the story of the whale or his earlier adventures being preached at Nineveh. But it very well could have been. He's saying what Jonah went through, the sign that Jonah went through, was part of the message or as part of what was laid into the people of Nineveh. Maybe that this guy was swallowed by a whale and coughed up. Maybe you ought to listen to him. But Christ uses that repentance at his preaching on the basis of the sign that was his life as a judgment on those who did not listen to something far greater than Jonah that echoes those themes or echoes that content. But Jonah, again, is far less than Jesus. And as a matter of fact, he's kind of, it doesn't say this in the scripture, he's almost a, an image of Jewish response to Jesus. He had the temple. He had the presence of the Lord. He, had the word, he was a prophet. He had the word of God come to him, and he gets on a boat, pays his money, sails for the other end of the Mediterranean. We don't know how far he got. It's a rough sea out there. And the Phoenicians were just getting underway. This, the time frame we're dealing with, with uh, him going to Tarshish, Carthage has just been founded. Okay, 825, 824 B.C. That's about the same time that Jonah is making the trip. And Carthage hasn't been established yet. One of the great colony cities of the Phoenicians. Uh, they were Tyre and Sidon and Byblos and uh, Ty what's the other one? Beirut, Beirut. Um, but so this is the, the great establishment of the Phoenician age uh, at this point. But he goes off. He's willing to get on a boat and sail like a, if you went to Elon Musk. God said, I want you to preach against the University of Idaho that they might repent of their sins. He said, no way. You go to Elon Musk, and he's going to say, I'll send you to Mars right now. He said, okay, I'm willing to take the risk. I'm willing to die on the way. Uh, but get me to Mars, because I don't want to be here doing this. That's about the level of it. All the ships at the time were coastal skimmers. Nothing was a deep water craft. Nothing had the keels that you needed for that kind of... Uh, Things. They went down constantly. And I always thought these guys threw the stuff over the side pretty quickly. But uh, maybe they knew their ship. It's probably a galley. This, this was not the, the Jonah's ship in the pictures in the Renaissance. You know, <laughs> five guys in Jonah. It's probably like 120 rowers. You know, 
they're they're uh, they're merchant craft, and they're they're having to do coastal skimming all across the Mediterranean, and uh, but they know they know what the limits are. But what's interesting about these guys, the reason I said this may be also a symbol of of Jewish response to the gospel is because I liked we get ignore these guys but in the first chapter of the book of Jonah these sailors are a pretty regular guys stand up people that really want to do the right thing and really want to figure this out and don't want to die thank you very much each cried to his God so the captain came in and said to him what do you mean you sleeper just like the disciples said to Christ, uh, Teacher, do you not care if we perish? Nobody likes to see someone sleeping when your life is going to um, hell. Um, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call upon your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we do not perish. This is sort of echoed later with the repentance of Nineveh when the king calls for repentance. He says, just pray to your God. I don't care who he is, but the gods are who we're thinking about right now because the storm is getting worse. So they cast lots. They said to one another, come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Now, I don't want to get into whether or not lot casting works. It did this time. And it promises in somewhere, I think in Proverbs, is it? The lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is holy from the Lord, something like that. Um, deal with it on your own time. Um, they cast lots, and it works. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and whence do you come? What is your country, and of what people are you? This is Again, out of antiquity, you're picking up a group of people on the pier at Joppa, and he paid his fare. You don't know who he is, what gods he references, and what kind of trouble he's in. But they want to know now. And he tells them, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. It's not the God of heaven and earth. It's the God of heaven who made the earth. Okay, God of heaven who made the earth. Well, now these men, verse 10, are exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? We didn't know. I mean, we've got a lot of gods here. We are placating all of them. But you have the God who is up there and made all this. And you're the one that we know from the lots. You've caused the trouble. You've done something. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. They were, you know, what is this you have done? Exceedingly afraid. I like these guys. These are, these are people that every piece of information that comes across their plate is, is drawing them more towards God. Jonah has all the information. He's talking to God. He's got the message of God. He's turning his back on God and running to the other end of the world. They've got false gods. Remember what it says in Acts uh, 17. 
uh, about the nations, he's at the boundaries of their habitations, there are a lot of periods, that they might feel if after him in the hopes that they might find him. People all over the world were put where they were put with the hope on God's part that they would have an urge for the divine that would seek after God. <coughs> so they want to know. They, they've, they've got theology on the mind now. They said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, take me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. They knew it, he knew it, he had an answer, and they go, no, that's, that's crazy talk right there. Religion demands a lot, but he's basically saying, uh, human sacrifice, that's what we have to do. I'm the human. Not a human sacrifice of an innocent virgin, but the sacrifice of the guy who's guilty. But they, that did not, they didn't comprehend that. They said, nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring the ship back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. No matter what you think of what God wants in the situation, as you draw closer to God, the expectations of God Real submission to God means that you're comfortable. First, you hear things you can't imagine hearing. If you ever read your Bibles and get past the flannel graph and the Bible story books, if you ever get, um, oh, you probably run into the story of Moses on his way to lead the people out of Egypt, and God has beats him at an inn and tries to kill it. And you go, what? Hold it, what? He just talked to him at the burning bush, commissions him, he's on his way, God meets him at this end and says, tried to kill it. Now, you're dealing with something that, first off, you tried to fit it into your idea of what you're comfortable with about God. If you start to turn toward the presence of God, you're going to get sometimes ordered to preach to Nineveh, sometimes told things that you don't have a category for. And initially you'll resist it. Initially you'll go, we can't do that. That's, what, it, what do you look at the, uh, Abraham's faith? Um, child of promise, waited for years, through Sarah, you bet. Look, here's Isaac. Take him up to the top of Mount Moriah and kill him. Okay. That's the brilliance of Abraham's faith. That's the, th that's where, you know, not that he goes, oh, I'm, I'm bloodthirsty, I can do this. I've killed a lot of people. It's his child, it's the child of the promise. It doesn't fit a lot of our categories. And just like this, it was human sacrifice. And these pagan worshipers of other deities know this is the answer. They're trying very hard to not have to do that. Let's just do it through our way. Let's finish this voyage by rowing to shore if we can. But God's not going to let that happen. Therefore, they cried to the Lord. By this point, you know, Jonah hasn't done that. Jonah has not cried to the Lord. He's just told his shipmates <coughs> that he should have. He told his shipmates 
who he was, whence he came, and he told them that he was running away from God. And they've gotten to the point, first crying on their own gods, then going to get him to get on get his God in on it, then finding out he was guilty before his God, finding out what it was going to take, and now we beseech thee, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. They finally, they had thrown all their worldly possessions into the drink, They've been rowing hard. They have been developing their theology. They've been finding out who was the God of heaven who had made the sea and dry land. They realized this guy was running for God for his own purposes, but he knew what had to be done. And they hedge their bets. When they do it, they say, Lord, okay, we don't want to be guilty of innocent blood. We know that's wrong. That's why we didn't want to throw him in. But looks like we're going to have to. Their hands are so, you know, for the pagans, their hands are really clean. For the idolaters, far better as people in response to God's movement in their circumstance. And look, verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I bet. You know, that's, it's... Uh, you're going to be making altars all the way to Tarshish. Stopping every five miles. That's where they got. Because someone fleeing the presence of the Lord, and I don't know if this affects, we don't get this opportunity to pick up a hitchhiker running from God. But uh, you know people that are. You, you know people that used to be claimed to be Christians who are running running from the presence of the Lord and it for anybody who is responsive to the presence of the Lord in a positive way turning towards him yourself moving closer to him yourself you can see the runaway freight train that is the circumstance of their life it's just hell on wheels and it's getting worse and worse and it's almost like a great, um, you see it in Romans 1, a great testimony of what, um, what happens to people who do not honor God or give him thanks. He gives them up to the futility of their own minds. Jonah has got to replace the presence of the Lord and God's instruction with his own. That's what everybody who does this has to do. They've got to come up with an inertial force for living. And they're either going to pick their own ideas, which are, you know, 50 pound sacks of stupid, or their passions, or um, somebody else that tells them what to do. They, they don't have a means of coming up with a good, um, a good idea. And you can watch it happen. But use the opportunity to realize what the presence of the Lord means to you. It's, I, I, there's a couple of verses. Now, these are not the Hebrew rendering. But here on the side, Acts 3, uh, 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, 
that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. We know that everything we look forward to in our terms of our eschatology, whatever your beliefs are, about when it happens and who's the Antichrist, um, we know that we shall see him as he is, and when we do, we shall be like him. The presence of the Lord is central to your hope. Okay? To be with Jesus Christ. When Paul says about dying, he says, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I I have to choose. I'm hard-pressed between the two. Do I die and get to be with Jesus or stay and help you? We all know that our hope positively is in this. Somehow, not the temple, not the Shekinah glory, but the um, being closer and closer to seeing him. And on the negative side, 2 Thessalonians 9, actually the chapter is dropped out of it. I don't know what chapter that is. It's verse 9. They shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So the negative side, it, it, it rotates on that, that distinction. The presence of the Lord is, is an axis on which you can measure yourself. You know when you've turned your back on everything that you... Uh, served, you may still believe it. Jonah doesn't have any doubt. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea of the dry land. I got my theology straight. I'm just going that way. Thank you very much. I don't want to do what he wants me to do. That's still true, but I don't want to. Ram was telling me about a guy he had a ministry to a while ago who had all the right answers about things, but had none of the right life. He knew what he thought. He hadn't bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. He had not said, I'm going to turn away, and it usually is from our own self. It's not a flight to a place on the globe that's a long way away. Some people have run physically, but other people just run inwardly. They just, more and more of their life is their own decision. If more and more of your life is the lordship of you over your life, you're drawing closer to the presence of you, but you're further from the presence of the Lord. And I like Lewis's view of hell in that every man is being given that thy will be done. It's whether you say it to God or God says it to you. And your will is going to be done, but it's not going to be the presence of the Lord. It's not going to be seeing him as he is and becoming like him. You've got to check. Um, you've got to check yourself. Okay, on this axis, there's a lot of axes a lot of axes on which we can measure our walk. This is one I think that is sort of present in this first chapter. The flight from the presence. And the, and the pagans incremental submission. They're all bowing the knee and offering sacrifices and vowing. And Jonah has broke every vow and every, every bit of sanctity he had to get away from God. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, 
when I was young, since <laughs> I knew the story, I sort of always viewed the fish as kind of, oh, the fish is rescuing Jonah. But I, then I began to think of it like Jaws <laughs> and realized, wouldn't it be nice if I fell overboard in high seas? I could float for a while. If they threw me overboard, I always hated the idea of the pirate thing of they bind you and blindfold you and then push you in. Um, it's a lot harder. We'll put a cannonball on your feet. That was tough. Um, but this is that awful moment when you get pushed into the water and something really big first swims by your foot to let you know and then swallows you. This is horrifying. This is just, this is, this is the end. It's, it's falling down a cliff onto, it's like Wiley Coyote falling down a cliff onto a road and then getting hit by a truck. We, we, we tend to not actually measure Jonah's moment in it. Jonah doesn't have the rest of the story yet. He's just getting pushed over the side, has fled from God, knows he has to die, and is now going to die horrifically. But that's the, that's the wonderful thing about... Uh, his symbolism, not the type and not the allegory, but that he's going through this thing that he is dying for his sins and he spends three days and three nights in the whale. And that's all going to be, in the long sense, his imaging becomes a closer presence of the Lord, first for Nineveh and then for us in Christ, we see far more of Christ uh, in this, uh, from a man who's fl in flight from it, it becomes an image of the presence of the Lord. Well, that's the end of the first chapter. Did I miss anything about uh, Assyria that you needed? Too much information? Uh, the ones in the Bible that are the Neo-Assyrian kings, the Tiglath-Pileser and on, those are the ones that get mentioned in the Bible. Sennacherib, uh, S.R. Hayden, S.R. Hayden is the one who ships all the Samaritans in. You wonder where the Samaritans came from? That was getting mass deported by the Assyrians from somewhere else. And they got put in Palestine. He's the one who did that. Uh, Asher Banipal had a great library. Okay. And uh, Lord Byron run, uh, wrote a great poem about Sennacherib. But, well, let's thank God. <laughs> Dear Lord, we're very grateful. Thank you for the pleasant evening. We'd ask you to be with us for the rest of these weeks. In your son's name, amen. <laughs>